Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, this is, uh, next week will be last class. Then Eddie picks up. But then I got an email from Eddie saying that he's not going to pick up till the following week. Oh, he will be here. Okay. So next week will be the last week of this class. The next week will probably either be Eddie or Phil. So if it's Phil, he'll have an encore presentation. If it's Eddie, he'll start something, start something new there. So again, appreciate everyone coming out. Definitely getting into fall weather. That seems like now. Uh, let's go ahead and begin with word of prayer, if we could. Father, we do bless you, and uh, you are blessed. We acknowledge you as creator and Lord, as king of the universe. We ask tonight that as we look at the life of Jesus, the anointed one, that we can uh, come to a deeper faith, that we could come to more of an appreciation, and that we can have our faith renewed and strengthened through looking at encounters in his life and how it impacted those around him at the time, may it have a similar impact on our lives. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. All right, tonight, um, again, we've been looking at the Jewish context of our scripture. We've kind of been making the point that when we engage with the scripture, we are engaging in a cross-cultural experience. Uh, the Bible is written in a Jewish Eastern mindset, and we are in a Western Greek mindset, and they are very different. So the encouragement has been that as we read through Scripture, we acknowledge how we look at Scripture. We maybe are maybe more aware of it, and then we try to understand perhaps how Scripture was being interpreted or how things, events were happening in their time. Tonight we're looking at uh, Messianic Miracles. Uh, will be the title. Goals of the class is going to be review for the miracles of Jesus, study them in the context of the culture, and hopefully that can deepen our faith in the character and person of Jesus. So again, last week as a review, we kind of had, uh, who are these people? We open up the New Testament, and all of a sudden we've got all these names and people uh, being thrown at us with no definition, no understanding. Uh, we looked at the political climate of the time and kind of how this uh, intertestamental time between the Old Testament and New Testament, um, how the Greeks and then the Ptolemies and the Seleucids all vied for control. And at that point, uh, when the Jewish, with the Maccabean revolt, regained control, and what that did, especially to the high priest office, how at the, from that point forward the high priest office became by appointment rather than by uh, heredity and it was no longer a lifetime appointment. Um, whoever was in rule could dismiss the high priest, put a new guy in just on a whim. Uh, we were also introduced to some of the sects and religious groups at the time. The Essenes were a religious sect. They were separate. They set themselves apart. They even physically moved apart uh, from uh, the rest of the Jewish community. They again believed they were the true church, the one church uh, of Israel. And everyone else was in darkness. Uh, 
the two major groups that we see in the New Testament are the Sadducees and the Pharisees, where again, we're introduced to them very on, early on in the Gospels. Sadducees were mainly the upper class. Uh, they did predominantly maintain the temple, so that meant most Sadducees were priests. Not all priests were Sadducees, and not all Sadducees were priests, but predominantly, when we see priests in the New Testament, we are recognizing that they are of the Sadducee class. Uh, especially the high priest. Uh, and the high priest would have maintained a lot of power in that time. Uh, again, we see an encounter with Paul where we have Sadducees and Pharisees together. And then Paul says, what? I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection. And that caused a big stir because Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. So kind of throws a bone out there and says, this is going to be fun. And watches them kind of fight at that point. Uh, so the other major group would be the Pharisees. Uh, they were readily accepted by most people out in the villages. The Sadducees were not that much accepted. Why? Well, they had the power. Uh, they were predominantly with the temple. If you don't have the power, we tend to kind of not like the people with the power. So that's why the Pharisees uh, were more readily accepted. They were, had a strong desire to maintain the purity markers of the Jewish nation. So they're seeing this Greek influence, this Hellenization of their land. And they are pushing back against that uh, with all they can to try to maintain Jewish identity. So let's, let's recognize that's, that was a part of their goal. Was some of their goal political? Absolutely. Uh, they definitely wanted power. Uh, but, but there was this uh, identity marker that was very strong with them. And the, the issue to me became that what they desired for their purity markers became something they wanted to Im basically inflict, maybe is the right term, but enforce upon the rest of the community. So it's kind of like if I have a... Um, if I have a purity marker and that purity marker is, you know what, you really shouldn't watch our movies. Well, that's okay if it's my purity marker. But if I start to enforce that on everyone else and say, you know what, if you go to our movies, you're really not a Christian. Well, that's what they were basically doing, was taking some of those markers. Now, why would I say, we, uh, you don't think you should go to our movies? Well, I'm kind of trying to put a fence, right, around our thoughts and around what we see some kind of building a fence inside of what God's law is. And that's what they were doing, is they were building a fence around the Torah. So if you didn't cross the fence, you knew you weren't crossing Torah, and therefore you were okay. So we're going to see um, both of these groups manifesting those characteristics as we work through uh, these messianic miracles. The term messianic miracle... Uh, Predominantly, Dr. Albert Frotchenbaum is the one who's uh, done the most research on this. And if you do much uh, research, you will see he's the one predominantly referenced. I've seen uh, a few others quote it. I don't know if they are referencing him or if they've come to that independent of him. Uh, but it is a term that he gives certain miracles of Jesus. It is derived from the Mishnah and Talmudic sources. And at the time of the first century, it was a part of the oral law. Who controlled the oral law? The Pharisees. 
Okay, Sadducees did not accept the oral law. They only accepted Torah as written by Moses. The Pharisees felt like uh, that as Moses was on the mountain for 70 days, it didn't take God 70 days to write down 10 commandments. So the rest of the time was God explaining to him how to then interpret Torah, and that was the beginning then of the oral law. He entrusted it to 70 elders or 70 uh, men. And the Pharisees kind of roughly see them as descending from that 70 group and maintaining that oral law. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where they got this. So within that oral law, there developed uh, certain miracles that only the Messiah could do. Now the oral law was finally written down around 200 BC, um, and that uh, becomes the Mishnah uh, that the Jews reference today. There was a belief that ordinary people could do certain miracles. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament. We see Moses, Elijah, Elisha doing certain miracles. So the idea of someone performing a miracle was not novel or anything that kind of you would go wow about and say, wow, this person's different. So there was a class of miracles that the rabbis, the Pharisees believed that any rabbi or Pharisee could perform those miracles. But there was a set of certain miracles that they believed and taught that only the Messiah could perform. The four messianic miracles that they identified would be the healing of a Jewish leper. Why would that be messianic? Well, because they saw leprosy as a judgment from God. And as an ordinary person, I can't overturn God's judgment upon somebody. So only the Messiah could do that. The casting out of a dumb demon. And I know somebody's thinking, how do you tell the dumb one from the smart one? So before you say that, I'm going to get that out of the way. Dumb demon, using the term dumb, meaning the person can't speak, so a mute, someone who's mute, uh, someone where the demon has rendered the person unable to speak. Uh, we'll look at that in a moment, but uh, they, their belief was that for the Pharisees to cast a demon out, you had to know the name of the demon. And by calling the demon's name, you could then cast the demon out. Well, obviously, if the person can't speak, you can't get the name. And therefore, only the Messiah had the ability to cast that demon out. We have the healing of a man born blind. Again, they felt that a physical birth defect was a, sign, was a um, judgment from God uh, for a person's sin. And again, as an ordinary person, I can't overturn God's uh, condemning this person because of sin. The Messiah could do that. And the fourth, raising someone dead for more than three days. Uh, again, the Pharisaic teaching was that the soul lingered around uh, the body for three days, and on the fourth day, not being able to recognize the body, would depart and would no longer be able to be uh, resuscitated. Uh, if, so if the spirit's still there, you could still hook them back up, and, and that would be more of a resuscitation. So that's kind of an overview. So now let's go through it uh, more specifically. So the healing of a leper. Uh, this is accounted in three of the Gospels, right? So Matthew... Mark, and Luke. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, a large crowd followed him. 
a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of the leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We're familiar with the story. One thing to note, it's interesting. Again, let's go back to our purity class. Okay, and here's where I'm hoping we're kind of trying to start tying some of these together. At least that's the intent, is that we, we see some of these and we, we bring them together. So with our purity class, we learned that you had two states you could be in, right? Your normal state was that of being clean. The marked state was that of being unclean. And in Leviticus 13, we have a whole chapter there of the markers of leprosy and how it made one unclean. The thing is to note is that leprosy is never healed. He doesn't say, Lord, can you heal me? What does he say? You can make me clean. He was in a state of being unclean. And he's wanting now to be cleansed. And Jesus doesn't say, I will heal you. What does Jesus say? You're cleansed. So leprosy, is, again, is never healed. It's you are cleansed from leprosy. So let's look at some examples of leprosy mentioned in the Old Testament. Moses at the burning bush, God tells him what? Put your hand in your cloak, pulls it out. What is it? It's white, leprous. Puts it back in, pulls it out, and he's cleansed. We have Miriam. After criticizing Moses, God strikes her with leprosy. And then Moses intervenes, and and the leprosy is then taken away. We have King Uzziah, after an unlawful incense, is struck with leprosy, and he dies from it. And then Naaman is cleansed by Elisha from leprosy, but Naaman is a Gentile, and that's important. Uh, in the story. Leviticus 13 and 14 goes through all the laws of leprosy and how you identify leprosy. I'm sure most of you have several of those passages memorized because it's a very popular part of the Old Testament. So Leviticus 13 says, okay, if you have this sign, the priest is to examine you and then come back a week later. Is Is it better or worse? If it's better, okay, now you don't have it. Is it worse? Well, maybe you you are now declared leprous. And then in chapter 14, we have here's what you are to do if you are cleansed of leprosy. And there was a very elaborate ritual. It starts with a couple of birds and one of them's killed and the blood's dipped and just uh, a very elaborate set of sacrifices to acknowledge that the priest has cleansed you from leprosy. But if you were declared leprous, you had to tear your garments and you were excluded from the community. Now again, we recognize they were a collective culture, so that would have been um, very difficult to be shunned by everyone else because of this diagnosis of leprosy. 
when we think of leprosy, we tend to think very specifically. We think of uh, someone, it's a nerve disease, to where your nerve endings uh, no longer function. Therefore, it starts to manifest itself in your skin. Uh, you no longer feel pain, so now all of a sudden you're stepping on a nail. You don't know it. It gets infected, works its way up. You can lose fingers. Uh, it's a very ugly disease. Uh, we will often call that Hansen's disease. And that's what I'll use kind of through this part of the discussion to talk of our understanding of leprosy. So it would be that Hansen's disease. We've had a leper's colony in Molokai, right? With Father Damien, I think, uh, where the lepers would go there in Molokai and, and be in that community there. What science has come to find out is leprosy isn't all that contagious. And if caught early, now it can be healed. But if you don't catch it early enough, then it does have uh, deadly consequences. The earliest record of Hansen's disease was really around the, the 600s in India. So at the time the Old Testament is written, what we look at as Hansen's disease really wasn't uh, in Israel's region. More than likely, as Alexander the Great conquers India, his men come back, that's when they could have brought it back into that region. But it's really not documented that that area, the Middle Eastern area, showed evidence of Hansen's disease at the time of the Old Testament, possibly during the time of Christ, but I think unlikely. We look at the symptoms of Hansen's disease, and then we read Leviticus 13, and the symptoms really don't match up. What we see in Leviticus 13 are more skin disorders. And notice the, the, um, the diagnosis can be within a week. Hansen's disease is very slow. Uh, you could have Hansen's and not really manifest symptoms for 20 years. Yet in Leviticus 13, the, Moses is saying what? Go, if you have a sign, symptom, go to the priest and then go back a week later with something that's happening fairly quickly. And it was much more contagious because the person who was declared leprous was told to cover their mouth. So we see a different contagion that's uh, formed there. So when we look at uh, the leper that Jesus is healing, we tend to focus on Hansen's disease and most commentaries are going to present it as someone with his fingers falling off and try to create some uh, much more difficult imagery. I don't think that's the case. I think he's probably exhibiting symptoms in Leviticus 13. What do we know for sure? We know for sure he's been declared leprous. He is outside the community, and he is needing to be cleansed. So Jesus touches him. Was touching him a violation of Torah? No. It just meant that Jesus now had to go through a cleansing process also. So I, what I am uncertain of is whether Jesus' purity overcame his impurity or whether Jesus did go through the proper uh, rituals to declare himself clean after having touched him. But it was not a violation of Torah to touch him. It just would have made him unclean. And again, being unclean is not being sinful. It's just a status. 
you become unclean, there's rituals to then become clean. So Jesus touches him. He is cleansed. And he says what? Go show yourself to the priest. He's simply saying what? Let's, go, let's, let's follow Leviticus 14. Go do what Leviticus 14 says. Mark says, but he went out and began to proclaim freely. So Mark says, well, I'm not sure he went straight to the temple. But I have a feeling he did go to the temple because he would needed to have done that in order to regain his admittance back into the community. So even though Mark tells us that Jesus says don't tell anybody, he didn't follow that, I believe the guy did go to the temple in order to perform the cleansing so that he would be accepted back into the community. So what does that mean? Well, in the Jewish recorded history, no Jew had been healed from leprosy because it was seen as a divine judgment from God. Again, you look at the case of Miriam. That's where they get that thought from. So no one had been healed of leprosy. What does that mean? I mean, the priests had never really gone through Leviticus 14. All of a sudden, now they've got a guy showing up that says, I've been healed from leprosy. So what do they have to do? They have to investigate it. They have to take a week to investigate, did the guy have leprosy? Is he healed? What was the circumstance of his healing? He's being shown to the priest, who are probably the priests, the Sadducees. So Jesus is sending this guy to the temple right into the Sadducees and say, okay guys, you got to deal with this. This was Jesus declaring to the Sadducees, I'm the Messiah. And they had to deal with it. It was something they had to do. Notice what he says in how Matthew describes it. Go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses' commandment. What? As a testimony to them. What was he testifying? The Messiah is here. So again, whereas we don't see messianic miracles described in the Gospels, I think we have evidence of at least something different about these miracles. There's a different reaction. So with this one, Jesus says, I want you to be a testimony to the Sadducees that the Messiah is here. In Luke, verse 17 What does it say? One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judah and from Jerusalem. So the leper had gone to Jerusalem. He had announced that he was a leper and now cleansed. They do this investigation and now they're in an investigative stage. So that's where we're seeing Pharisees coming from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus as to this claim of him being the Messiah due to the healing of a leper. At that point, they really weren't to intervene. They were just to watch. And, and see what was going on with this individual who had healed a leper. We move on to the casting out of a demon. 
Again, the Pharisees practiced what we would call exorcism. That's, that's our term for casting a demon out. So a demon has taken up residence within a person, controls that person. And they believed that you could cast a demon out, but there was only one way to do that. And that way was to ascertain the demon's name and then use that name by an, uh, with a higher authority to cast him out, the higher authority being God. And we see Jesus doing that. So if we look here in Mark, we said, and he was asking him, what is your name? Why is he doing that? Well, that was the typical way of, do, of casting out a demon. The man says, what? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And we see that, that story encounter. But all we're trying to do here is just to establish that I think that the record that the Pharisees had a certain method of casting out the demons is what Jesus is representing here. So then in Mark, we have this. Mark says, the demon-possessed man who was blind, the important part, and mute. So Mark makes a point to note that because that's the important phrase there that says this demon has rendered that individual unable to speak. He was brought to Jesus as in he healed him. So the mute man spoke and saw. Notice the difference in the reaction. Jesus has performed other miracles. And people were amazed and they brought others to him. But notice the reaction this time. All the crowd was amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Son of David is what? Messiah. This healing elicited a response that says, is this the Messiah? Because the Pharisees have been teaching us for a couple hundred years that only the Messiah could do this, and now all of a sudden we just saw it done. So now the crowd is going, is this the Messiah? The Pharisees have to react. And that's where they, you know, they're reacting while he's casting out Demons by Satan. Jesus going, that doesn't make any sense. Really? Satan casting out Satan? Come on. And look at what Jesus says, though. Again, kind of confirms this. By whom do your sons cast them out? So Jesus is assuming what? The Pharisees are casting out demons. But whose authority are they using? And Jesus is saying, well, if they're using God's authority to do it, why are you saying I'm not? So we have this reaction now from the Pharisees being confronted with a claim that Jesus is the Messiah and they're reacting to it in a very negative way. They're trying to push this off. We have a second instance of Jesus healing a mute demon. Uh, crowd came back to the disciples. This is, I think, after the transfiguration. Um, Jesus comes up, teacher, I have brought my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, again, it does various things, grinds his teeth, flings him into the fire. Uh, Jesus kind of just sighs, right? Says, how long am I going to be with you? Uh, 
And the disciples were not able to cast him out. Jesus casts him out. But look at what Jesus says near the end. They asked the question, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, and this is part I think we miss sometimes, this kind cannot come out except by prayer and fasting. So this kind, meaning this type of demon, that was different than the other demons. It's this, uh, in the, the Greek is genos, meaning a different kind of family. So Jesus acknowledges here that the demon that made this man mute was, was different. You had to do it differently. You can't just ask for his name and then in the name of Jesus, name of God, cast him out. There was a different methodology that was used. And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. This kind can only come out through prayer. So, uh, again, I see this as, as kind of we putting these together. Jesus, I think, is acknowledging that there is a difference for the demon who rendered an individual mute and acknowledging that that is a messianic miracle. Come now to the man born blind. This is in John chapter 9. John takes the entire chapter. We're going to spend a little time with this one. And he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, who sent this man or his parents that he would be born blind? So that's an insight into the culture of the time. The culture of the time was that if I was born with a physical defect, that's because that was a punishment from God. Either a punishment for my parents or punishment for me. Now, I'm born blind. So punishment from parents, we'll deal with that first. Torah says what? Torah says that God will uh, cause the sins of the fathers to be carried out until the second or third generation. So that's where they get the teaching that you could be born with a defect and that would be uh, because of your parents' sin. They also believed that a child in the womb had two inclinations, an inclination for good and an inclination for evil. And if while you were in the womb, the inclination for evil uh, was winning out, you may kick your mother in anger or in rebellion, and that would be a sin because that would be rebellion, not honoring your mother. So therefore, you would be born with a defect because you let the evil inclination win while you were in the womb and sinned in that manner. So that was the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching at the time. And when Jesus is confronted with that question, who sinned, Jesus says, "Uh, no, you don't have that right. He says, no, neither this man nor his father, nor his parents there's no sin here. We're not, we're not subject to karma. So Jesus is dispelling this teaching that just because you're born with a defect, that implies someone's sin. He just he puts that to rest. He says, what? This man's here for God's glory. There's a reason for this man being here. We see Jesus talking about a day and night. He says, I am the light of the world. And we see that throughout the book of John. 
We see this light and darkness, day and night, contrast throughout John. And again, I've given the references of, of how they come up with the, uh, the who sinned question. And again, we see that in Exodus, it says, who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So again, the, the thinking was that this man was judged by God. So an ordinary person cannot heal him because that would be overturning God's judgment. So when he had said this, he spat on the ground, poured it apart. He made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is sent. So he went away and washed and came away seeing. So Jesus spits. Notice, does the man ask to be healed? No. Does Jesus say, I'm about to heal you? The guy's sitting there. I don't know if he overhears the question. He's probably heard the question a lot. People pass him and talk as if he's not there, right? Kind of invisible. Wonder who sinned. Think that guy's the sinner? Think it's his parents? He's heard the talk his whole life. He's just sitting there. Been sitting there for years. Begging. It's the only way he can survive. And all of a sudden, he probably senses someone is now close, kind of in his space. I don't know if he hears Jesus spitting. Maybe he hears the, the dust squeaking a little bit in his hand. And all of a sudden, this mud is pushed into his eyes. And the guy simply says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. What are you going to do? Now, later on, he, re he recognizes or he says the man Jesus healed him. So somehow, I think he knew it was Jesus. But he is still confronted with now a choice. He has a choice to obey or just sit there. Rub, you know, pull the mud out. Not that it make him see, Yes. That's a good question. So I've got two speculations on that. And there can only be two speculations on that. He goes by himself. So yeah, he's got to navigate through the streets. Now recognize this. Let's, let's compound it a little more. Earlier in John, we see this is the Feast of Sukkot. The Feast of Temples. Booths. Just a month ago, September, we, we, we talked about that when we were in late September, about how that's the festival of booths. That's one of the festivals the Israelite men had to attend. So what does that mean about Jerusalem? It is jam-packed with people. And Jesus tells him, not go to the nearest pool, but go to a specific, the pool of Siloam, which was going to be down a very steep hill. So he's got to navigate all of this either by himself or possibly with some help. I'll talk, we'll get to that in a moment. So let's hold that question for a moment and I'll, we'll see what relates to that. So he's going down with this mud caked in his eyes by himself or with some help. And he gets to the pool of Siloam. Again, jam-packed. 
Now, what happens in the Feast of Tabernacles? It's not described in the Old Testament, but it is a ritual that the Jews developed. The Jews developed this, the water libation. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would draw water from a living spring and take that water and pour it onto the altar. What was the pool of Siloam? Well, that was what Hezekiah dug from a spring outside Jerusalem to bring water into Jerusalem. So that is a spring of what? Of living water. So the priests would come down to the pool of Siloam to draw their water with much celebration, much pomp and circumstance. It was called the rejoicing of the place of waters, of the water drawing, was what that particular uh, ritual was called. So we have this rejoicing of the water drawing happening at the pool of Siloam. My feeling is the blind guy gets there about the same time as the priests do because I think that's God's timing. The blind guy gets there and he dips in and he comes up and you hear this scream I can see he wasn't going to be quiet. Let's face it, this is a human. He's never seen. And he can see. What do we have? Rejoicing. What was the ritual? Rejoicing. Only Jesus has put a new spin on it, hasn't he? So now you have this, this problem. Some people are saying... No, that's not the blind guy. Can't be. Others are saying, yeah, I've been passing him for 30 years. I know that's him. No, it just looks like him. No, that is him. And where's he done this? Right in front of the Sadducees. Right in front of the priests. He's in their living room, to put it colloquially. Jesus sends this blind guy to be healed knowing that it is a messianic sign and he puts this guy right in the middle of the living room right in front of the TV you can't ignore it and that's the setting that this guy now finds himself in also understand that during the feast of tabernacles uh, they would erect these large candelabras around the temple and light them. And that was called the illumination. And it's interesting, what does Jesus say throughout this whole thing? He says what? No, I'm the light. Uh, you may see that the, the lights around the temple lights up the city some, but no. I'm the light during this time of a festival. So what do they do? They take this man now to the Pharisees. Why? Well, the Pharisees have been teaching. Only the Messiah can open the eyes of the blind. They get that from Isaiah. We, we saw this back in John when John the Baptist calls and says, hey, are you the Messiah one to come? Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, what? No. What do you see? You see the lame walking. You see those blind given sight. 
So they get this from Isaiah. So the Pharisees are now having to confront this with their own teaching. And John makes an important point. He says what? Now it was the Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. We're setting up, John setting up the conflict. The Pharisees were also asking how he received his sight. And he said, yeah, he, he applied mud to my eyes and I received sight. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, what? No, this can't be the Messiah. Why? He broke the Sabbath. Why did he break the Sabbath? No, he didn't break the Sabbath. He broke our fence. Our fence was, you can't make mud. What does the Sabbath say? You can't work. But the Pharisees had constructed their fences, right? To keep the people inside. And that's the point. Is Jesus crossed their fence. And now their honor is being challenged. We go back to our honor class, right? And if this guy can break my fence, then what's going to keep the next guy from breaking my fence? And now what we see in this encounter is I think the Pharisees are more worried about the fence than about the truth. And for us, we kind of have to make sure we're always recognizing that we shouldn't be worried about the fence. We need to be worried about the truth. What's the bigger story? But we see a, a division within the Pharisees. Others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform, and notice what the, the term that John uses here, perform such signs? And I think that's important. I think John is, is indicating there that this is a different type of miracle that indicates the Messiah. Again, I, I just think that's a little clue there. That they're saying, you know what? Some of these signs, I think they're going to refer back to the leper. I think they're going to refer back to the dumb mute or to the, the mute demon. And they're going, you know, we've got some signs going on here that it can't be a sinner. There was dissension among them. So they again said, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the guy says, well, he's a prophet. What other conclusion can you draw? So now, they don't want to believe him. So they interrogate the parents. Is this your son who was born blind? The parents do what? They say, well, yes, he's our son. Yes, he's born blind. After that, ask him. Why? They were afraid. Afraid of who? The Pharisees. Because what did the Pharisees said? If you, if you say this guy's the Messiah, we are going to kick you out of the synagogue. That's not just you got to change churches. That is you're dead to the community. You are no longer a part of this community. And that's something to, that would have been something that they would be afraid of. So they say what? He's our son. He's born blind. We'll establish those facts for you. But after that, you go ask him. they go back to him second time give glory to God we know this man is a sinner that seems kind of odd for us praise God he's a sinner no that's really not what they're saying give glory to God is a euphemism in essence they're saying I want you to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth that's really what they're saying 
They're saying, swear, swear that you're going to tell the truth. They're not praising God that this is a sinner. So let's get that euphemism out of the way. They're saying, tell the truth. We think this guy's a sinner. He goes, you know what? I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. And doesn't that sum up the gospel? So they said to him, what did they do to you? Now again, why were they upset? Because Jesus broke their fence about making mud on the Sabbath. Now let's remember, this guy, put it in our human context again. Let's, let's not forget, this guy woke up blind. He went to his usual spot. He sat down and was just doing his begging. And some guy comes along, shoves mud in his eyes. He makes his way to a pool. He's now seeing. Can you, can you imagine the adrenaline and the emotion and the excitement running through his mind? It's got to be racing. He's never had a theological discussion with anybody. He's been the subject of theological discussions. Nobody's ever come up to him and said, you know, let's talk about sin and birth defects and God. Let's, re let's reason. No, no. He's been talked about, but he's never engaged in a conversation. And now all of a sudden, he's now confronted with the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and being forced into this theological discussion. And he's just now being bombarded with all of this sight, all of these images he's never seen. His brain is trying to process all of this. And it's, well, what did he do? As I can see. He gets a little bold, doesn't he? I don't know if he's getting bold or if he's just getting tired, but you've got this guy, again, never had a conversation with leaders. Here's his response. I already told you what happened. You want to hear it again? Hey, you want to be his disciples too? Now, I don't know if the guy was intentionally throwing the bomb out in front of him knowing that this is really going to rile them up or if he's going, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But that sure throws them into a frothing anger. You are his disciple, we are, and what are they calling upon? That's, here's an honor statement. They're saying, we are the disciples of Moses. They spoke abusively to him. We do not know, um, we don't know where this man is from. And the guy goes, you know, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Because you guys have been teaching for hundreds of years that only the Messiah can open the eyes of the blind. And here it's happened, and you don't know where he's come from? Who are you people? And he's right. He's thinking clearly. But you see, when we start protecting our fences... We stop thinking rationally. And that's what they've done. 
He goes, what? God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is someone is God-fearing, he does as well, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And that's the true statement. They answered him, you were born entirely in your sins. Again, that's going back to their teaching, right? They don't know. Some, some say that you know, this guy was illegitimate birth or something like that. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about their belief that a person born with a defect was born because of God's judgment of someone's sin, their fathers or him. They're saying, no, you're the one who sinned. We're from Moses. And what do they do? They kick him out simply says, so they put him out. That's not meaning they just excuse him from this inquisition. They excommunicated him. Again, let's think about the guy. He woke up this morning blind, but what did he have? He had family. He had friends. He had people he could talk to. Now what does he have? Well, he can see, but now he's been kicked out of his community. To his parents, he's dead. He can't go home. It would be wrong for them to accept him back after the Pharisees have excommunicated him. Can you imagine what now is going through the guy's mind? He's, he's excited that he can see, but now he understands this is the Messiah, and yet his religious teachers have abandoned him. Not only have they abandoned him, they have thrown him out. This is the part I think we miss. And if we are to say, is there a part of the story that is maybe the point for us? Now, I think the point of the story is Jesus is the Messiah. That's the main point. But here I think John gives us maybe a very close second to the main point. Jesus heard that he had put him out. How did Jesus hear that he had put him out? Go back to your question. I think some of his disciples helped him. I think when when Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, some of his disciples said, we'll help you. And I think they've come back. And they've said, hey Jesus, guy you healed this morning, they just kicked him out. I think that's all they had to say. What does Jesus do? He hunts for him. And upon finding him, remember, the city's packed. And I don't think Jesus has this supernatural knowledge or find him on his iPhone to know exactly where he is. Jesus puts some effort into finding him. Why? Because he's just been kicked out. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you alone. And I think that's the message for us, isn't it? If we follow Christ, it could be that others abandon us. It could be our religious leaders, friends, family, church. But Jesus says, I'll find you. I will not leave you alone. Jesus said to him, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man was a messianic title from Daniel. Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Messiah? What does he say? Who is he, sir, that I can believe in him? I think he's not, I don't think he's saying here, yeah, maybe. I think he's saying, yeah, I'd like to see him. I do believe in him because I've been taught this miracle here is a sign of him. Jesus says what? Well, here's looking at you, kid. Well, maybe not in those terms. He says, hey, I'm right here. Jesus says what? For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. What do some of the Pharisees say? We're not blind too, are we? Jesus says if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you maintain, we see your sin remains. Jesus incriminates them there, right? He says, no, you're the guys who are blind because the miracle has been performed in front of you and you have rejected it. You've been more concerned about your fences. So we see this story here. We move on in time. Again, that's going to happen uh, in September, so we start moving along in time. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed Jesus with ointment. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not meant unto death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place he was in. Disciples see this and go, oh, okay. Lazarus isn't going to die, so there's no hurry. The scripture makes note that Jesus did love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So this is not some animosity of Jesus. He's not being mean or cruel to them. He loves them. But he's saying what? This is going to be for God's glory. And Jesus purposefully delays two days. After this, he says to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said, uh, weren't the Jews just seeking to stone you? And you want to go there again? Jesus said, there's not 12 hours in the day. Again, we see this day and night in John being, being represented here. Uh, if anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks during the night, he stumbles because the light's not with him. Um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And the disciples kind of go, oh, gee, if he's just asleep, why don't you just let him sleep? You know, what's the big deal? Jesus says, you know what, let me just spell it out. Lazarus died. He is dead. And that's, I'm glad because now you get to see the full account. Thomas uh, does his thing with, well, let's just go and we'll all die together. You know, I like Thomas on that. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already, what, been in the tomb, and John is purposeful about this. He's been in the tomb four days. Again, why is that important? Because the Pharisees taught, if you've been dead three days, you're just mostly dead. And if you take the pill, maybe you can come back. But four days, you're really dead. 
because you've been, your body's starting to deteriorate and the soul can't recognize you, so the soul goes to Sheol and the body just decomposes. Again, that was their teaching, not saying this is what Scripture teaches, but that's, what that's their impression of what's going on. So Jesus shows up on the fourth day. Um, and we see uh, Martha come out. Then they calls for Mary. We see what in, um, he says, your brother will rise from the dead. And he goes, you know, I, would, I know he'll rise in the resurrection. Jesus said, oh, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I've come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. So Mary came to the place uh, saying, Lord, if you'd been there, a little bit of a rebuke. Lord, if you'd been here, he really wouldn't have died. We see Jesus, we see this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Lord, come and see. We see the, the phrase, Jesus wept. It's very slight in English. Just very much of a nuance. We have Mary and the others weeping and we have Jesus wept. It's two different terms, two different looks. Weeping is the wailing, the mourning, the the uncontrolled emotion of grief at the tomb. Jesus wept. It's more like a couple of tears come down. It's not the same weeping that Mary and the others were doing. It's just a couple of tears. We could speculate on the why. But Jesus is overcome with this emotion. And he sheds a tear. Notice what they say. What are they going back to? What miracle do they go back to? Could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have kept this man from dying. So the, the, even the bystanders are, are recognizing the importance and the significance of the man born blind miracle. So they go back to that and say, you know, if he'd done that, couldn't he have kept him from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, we've seen this twice, came to the tomb. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha says what? Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. John's repeating that. He's going to make sure we know it's been four days. Resurrection, resuscitation is not possible. Jesus uh, said to her, if you know you believe, and Jesus raised his eyes. So again, we talked about prayer positions in the past in one of our prior lessons. Here's what is the prayer position Jesus has right here. He's raising his eyes, more than likely his hands to God, in, in, in speaking to God. Says what? Lazarus, come out. And out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around him with a cloth. And you just have to wonder about that scene. I mean, is this guy floating out? How's, or, I mean, you know, you just, I, I, how'd he come out? And not that having his face bound in a dark cave mattered much. But maybe that could be. But Lazarus comes out. Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary, 
Mary saw what had done and believed in him. But some of them did what? Went to the Pharisees, told them the things that Jesus had done. I don't know if they're tattletaling or if they're going, hey, you guys better investigate this. This, what, what are you doing? We've seen a leper healed. We've seen a mute demon cast out. We've seen a man born blind healed. And we've seen Lazarus raised. Pharisees, Therefore, chief priests, chief priests would have been uh, Ananias, Annas, and Caiaphas. Again, Sadducees and the Pharisees. We've seen all of a sudden now we've got these enemies coming together. Convened a council meeting saying, what are we going to do about this man that is performing many signs? And I think, again, that's just a little hint to these messianic miracles. These signs are different than what we've seen. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, For you know nothing at all, nor are you taking into account that it is in your best interest that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish instead. And that's his prophecy, right? Caiaphas didn't know the truth he was speaking at that point. And John points that out. It's for our benefit that Jesus dies then all of us perish. And that's the message of the Messianic miracles. Don't know. The miracles demand a response, don't they? Whether we understand these as Messianic miracles or just a set of miracles that Jesus did, they still demand a response as to the authenticity of Jesus as the anointed one. The people of that time were confronted with it. The people of our time are confronted with it. And the question is, are we blind and now we see? Or do we think we see and yet still blind? And Jesus, I think, through this gives us the message that says, you know what, I'll always find you. I will not abandon you. That's the lesson for tonight. Appreciate your attention. Next week, um, probably get in trouble, but we're going to deal some with hermeneutics. So the interpretation of Scripture and kind of how we do that. We're going to look at how the Hebrews interpreted Scripture. Um, Phil had mentioned this before as far as their four methods or four levels of interpretation. We're going to get into that a little deeper. And we're going to see how does that uh, impact us and kind of how do we go about using what we've learned to start understanding or maybe try to how do we how do we interpret scripture and apply it in our lives so that's for next week maybe raise a stir and then hand it over to eddie so thanks everybody hey i'm eddie white the senior minister for the east side church of christ sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast i hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.